Welcome to Everywhere Radio. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly, and I'm your host, Whitney Kimball Coe. Each episode, I spotlight the good, scrappy, and joyful ways rural people and their allies are building a more inclusive nation. The following episode isn't exactly about joy, however, um, it's the opposite. More specifically in this episode, we offer a glimpse of the fallout that accompanies natural disaster. Climate change is making itself felt across the country and the globe, but this past July, it hit home for us, literally. The Center for Rural Strategies, which is the organization I work for, is headquartered in Whitesburg, Kentucky. And this summer, a massive flood wiped out homes and businesses and livelihoods in Eastern Kentucky. Our office sits in the heart of downtown Whitesburg and it was spared, but many of our friends and neighbors were not so fortunate. Only those who've experienced such a thing can describe the power of water and gravity coming together to turn whole neighborhoods into lakes. The flood in Kentucky was so intense, it broke windows, sent cars down gulches, and launched furniture into treetops. 39 lives were lost and many more were near lost. And as of this recording, many schools have yet to reconvene for the fall semester. For this Everywhere Radio episode, we wanted to talk with people on the front lines who are bearing witness to the devastation and finding ways to serve their community. We'll talk with Jessica Shelton with Kentucky Mutual Aid in a few minutes. But first, we're going to talk with Katie Myers, who is a writer, theater artist, and audio producer living in Whitesburg. Katie works as a reporter with the Ohio Valley Resource and WMMT radio station. And her work has appeared in the Daily Yonder, Belt Magazine, and Scallywag Magazine, among others. And on July 28th, Katie was participating in the Appalachian Writers Workshop at Hindman Settlement School in Knott County, Kentucky. And she woke up that morning to a raging flood. Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on Everywhere Radio. Thank How you are for- you? Thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing okay, a little overwhelmed, but making it through. Yeah, I know you're really busy right now. You you mentioned you have a lot of projects going on. Can you describe some of those? Are they related to the flood? Yeah, I mean, I think really the the project right now is to, you know, figure out how best to cover this flood as um, the initial media hype and attention around it dies down and we sort of enter the next phase of recovery. So, you know, there's a, a lot of little pieces to pull apart um, and focus on. So it's my my work right now. Yeah. So you, you were on, I mean, you woke up to the flood um, on the 28th and it was, I know it was surrounding Hindman and all throughout Knott County. What was that like? First off, it had been raining nonstop and not, not just rain, but crazy rain. Like, like I was drinking a cup of coffee and the wind and the rain, like knocked it off the table next to me and smash it into a wall where it shattered kind of wind and rain. So I've lived in East Kentucky long enough to know that maybe the, you know, the creeks were possibly not going to stay put. Um, But, you know, I still went to sleep, slept like a baby. Honestly, I was asleep on top of a hill. Um, And I just woke up to, um, to uh, the general manager of WMT, Taya Weimer, calling me and asking if I was okay. And I didn't see any reason why I shouldn't be okay. And then I sort of got up and looked out the window and it turned out that we were in an island. Um, 
and Heinemann was underwater. So that was about 6 a.m. Oh my goodness. And what did you see when you looked out? You said it's underwater. What did you see around you? Um, well, Troublesome Creek, you know, burst its banks. And so by then it had already started to recede and it wasn't rushing in the way that I think it was overnight. But, um, you know, people's trucks were in the creek. There were cars in the creek. Um, you know, the James Still cabin on Heinemann's property where there were a lot of archives housed. People were starting to get in there and sort of get their muck boots on and get all of these precious archives out. Um, so I, I was, you know, as I woke up and got going, I started helping people carry instruments and stuff that were just covered in mud. Uh, and yeah, in Heinemann itself, um, there was just water on the street and, you know, it wasn't passable. There were chunks of uh, buildings and chunks of road just kind of scattered around um, and people just mm -hmm. kind of one thing you don't realize, I think, if you haven't been in a disaster is just the like the shell shock that everybody feels. It's just like this collective feeling that that settles on everyone and people are just kind of you just walk around and people are just kind of standing around and kind of looking at everything um, just silently. Nobody really knows what to do. So one of my friends was at Hyman Settlement with you that day and she said she saw you grab your recorder and some of, I guess, reporting materials that you would use. It's almost like you knew that you needed to start documenting. So I, I imagine you were shell-shocked, shell but also it sounds like you moved pretty quickly to, I need to make sure I'm taking the pulse of what's happening right now. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I knew people probably weren't going to want to talk yet. So I just tried to get some sounds, you know, you, you know, you want to get natural sound um, sound of the the water sort of rushing, which you could still hear in places. And, and so I just tried to get that, but I sort of knew the night before. And I remember saying to a couple of people, like, if this rain keeps going, like, I'm going to have a job to do. <laughs> so I, was, I sort of had an inkling that I might have to get up and get going. Mm -hmm. Was there any concern on your part that you might not get off of that mountain? Or you weren't going to be stuck. Um, I I was worried it would take a while. I think I didn't realize how quickly the floodwaters would go down, which is like in flash flooding, the water just comes and it goes, um, and it doesn't. You know, in a day, it's pretty much all the way down, or in a few hours. Um, whereas a river flood can take a lot longer, and river floods are more what I'm accustomed to hearing about. So. Yeah, I mean, me and a friend of mine who had come from Whitesbury, we spent like four hours on the porch debating what to do. Um, <laughs> we, were, we didn't know which road, and you couldn't get good information. Like, you know, you first of all, we didn't have yeah. service. Um, you call the, you know, transportation cabinet, and they'd be like, we don't know either, <laughs> you know? And so um, it was tough to get good information about the roads, and eventually you just had to go try. Uh, and I guess you all had a car. I know some of them were submerged by that time. Mm -hmm. we, got, we were lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then you come down the mountain. Where did you go after that? Um, we just went back to Whitesburg. I don't think we quite realized how we had a sense of how bad it was and we knew the roads had been cut off. So that's why we waited a while because it took longer because that was a river flood. It's usually a half hour trip. And instead of going the half hour way, there was a landslide. So we had to go all the way around Pikeville, um, which was two hours. Um, and then down to Whitesburg via 23. And when we got there, 
um, the water had gone down, but you know, there was like four cars smashed into each other in the road and you know, just mud everywhere and everything like smelled bad, you know, just like what kind of smells what I'm, I'm interested. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's sewage, honestly, Mm -hmm. um, chemicals, gas, um, just kind of this very nasty combination of things. And as it started to dry, it like started to turn particulate like in there. So I visited Whitesburg, I guess a week or two after the floodwaters had receded. And I guess a lot of those smells had, you know, dissipated, but the mud uh, stayed and I saw people's lives out on the curb. Um, Clearly people have had to pull out um, insulation, walls, flooring, carpets, all their furniture, all the things that make up a a home. There's this neighborhood called Upper Bottom, which um, is just like, you know, it's on the walking trail. You know, I I was used to seeing the cats and the little kids riding their bikes and saying hello to people as they pass by. And Mm -hmm. it's just completely dark. Like nobody's there right now. Yeah. Um, So wearing your reporter hat, I mean, in a way you've got... um, you've got a job to do to tell the story of what's happening and and how it's unfolding. And now, as you mentioned, now that other media coverage has sort of receded, um, how do we step in and start to tell the story of what's next? Um, What are some of the, the big questions that you're grappling with that you would like some answers to this moment? I mean, to me, like the big question that underlines a disaster like this is where are people going to live? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like housing is a huge, it's, it was already a crisis here. Um, I couldn't, like I'm living in my employer's house because I couldn't find a affordable place to live. So, and that was, you know, two years ago. So um, for renters particularly, it's tough. Um, a lot of homeowners are dealing with, maybe they inherited the house. They don't really have the deed because whatever it's been, just the house has been passed around. Um, uh, there's just going to be a lot of trouble in trying to get houses restored or, you know, trying to get people out of the flood zone. Um, people may not want to go, or if they do, there just may not be enough housing for them here. Um, so that's a big question. I mean, obviously FEMA and how they're dealing with this. Um, yeah, there's, there's just a lot to piece apart. Um, and, you know, above all, it's also just about like, I want, I think I, I want people to understand the experience of, of living through a disaster and like the sort of both the like bureaucratic demands that are on you as you attempt to recover, like all of these, this paperwork you have to do, all this documenting you have to do all the while you're in this like state of shock um, and you're just trying to survive. And so I think part, I feel like part of my job is to just, I just want people to understand that because unfortunately that's something that increasingly a lot of people are going to deal with you know, most of us are probably going to deal with some version of this over the course of our lives. Well, as somebody who hasn't really lived through a natural disaster yet, I, you know, I have a very practical question, like sort of like the one you were facing on the porch of Hindman, where you were trying to figure out, is there a safe way to get off this mountain? And who do I call to find out? Like, what is the first call you make? Or what is the first step you take after your house has been consumed by water? People describe that time as total chaos and absolute moving by instinct. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think from what I've heard, a lot of people tried to get to higher ground. They held on on to trees. um, 
one friend of mine got in her car and just kind of went to her field, which was like, maybe the water would go a little slower. It's, I will say the advice is not to drive in a flood, <laughs> but some people to drive. I've heard that. I've heard that. Um, <laughs> uh, there were swift water rescues. You know, we're in a place where a lot of people have boats mm-hmm. side by sides, and I will say those came in handy. Um, and then after the waters recede, how do people find the help that they need at the outset? That's a great question. I mean, I mean, a lot of people called emergency services, although you know, on the night of emergency services were flooded out of their own, you know, HQs. Like most fire departments couldn't, like the Heinemann Fire Department couldn't get to their, to their building or their trucks. And one of their trucks ended up in the creek. But, um, you know, I think calling like emergency management was a route for some people um, if they had that number or, you know, I think a lot of people This is speculation, you know, but I'm sure a lot of people just try to get in touch with their families first off and maybe, you know, try to share information that way, share information with their neighbors. Um, Because especially cell service was just down for a lot of folks and Internet was down. So, you know, maybe you couldn't even call anybody. Maybe you could you just kind of went and knocked on your neighbor's doors and tried to figure out what had happened. Yeah, because when I was there, like, two weeks later in Whitesburg, it seemed like folks were still trying to create central sources of um, support or resources or, you know, a lot of folks were calling in mutual aid, but not not clear about next steps yet. So that chaos is really difficult um, to live in yeah. for so long. No, chaos is the right word. I mean, I just think information is difficult to come by, which is why it was so sad that our radio system down. You know, we wanted we wanted to be able to be in the position to do that and we would have been, but our station was flooded, so we couldn't broadcast. So how quickly were you able to get that back up and what were the some of the first things that you put out on the air? Um, it took about a month. Uh, our operations coordinator and general manager did a lot of that work and it's, it was a heroic effort and it's worth asking them about because um, essentially it involved like taking a side-by-side up a mountain um, to get to our tower and all this other stuff. And yeah, it's, it's a wild story, but um, it took a month. So right now we're just pretty much doing pre-recorded stuff, playlists, and I'm, you know, I'm mixing some stories and, uh, you know, we have, we we're trying to get our public affairs um, programming back up and get a lot of PSAs going just to, you know, deliver information as much as we can. You've been on the air for a while. You've been a reporter for a while. You've done reporting on environmental issues for a while. Um, how is this different? I mean, this li- the lived experience of this, how, how has that impacted how you want to tell these stories or has it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's impacted, negatively impacted my clarity of thought when I'm trying to piece through what to do because I'm just, yeah, I've, I don't know if I've ever reported on a situation like this where I was kind of in the middle of it. So, you know, I've been surprised by how overwhelmed I've felt at times. Um, and I've just, you know, I'm just kind of processing this alongside everybody else. And you kind of feel like, you know, I'm, I was a little bit, 
you know, just driving around and seeing cars and trees and buildings in the road, you know, you just don't really realize what this kind of disaster can do. And it kind of feels like you're seeing, like, glimpsing this, like, I don't know, like, divine fury that you weren't supposed to see or something. It's just, like, terrifying, actually. And so, you know, I think there's that level. And then there's also just, like, I think... I found that my reporting has gotten more emotional for me. Like it's gotten like even the way that I think I express things like has just become, it's become more of an emotionally involved process, you know? And like, I think that can make it better. Um, but yeah, it's just, I'm, I'm connected to it in a different way. There's a lot to Katie um, that we could talk about. Thank you so much though, for being willing to share details about your experience with the floods um, and how you're reporting on them and engaging in some of those questions with me. really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for all your thoughtful questions. They made me, yeah, reach for all kinds of answers. I don't think I've reached for. Cool. Good. Good. Stay tuned. Up next, we talk with Jessica Shelton, one of the coordinators of EKY Mutual Aid. We'll be right back after this from The Daily Yonder. Hi, I'm Xander Brown with The Daily Yonder. Check out The Yonder Report, a weekly podcast rounding up the latest rural news. Produced by The Daily Yonder and Public News Service, you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And now we bring you another perspective from the flood in Eastern Kentucky. Jessica Shelton is the director of the Appalachian Media Institute in Whitesburg, Kentucky, where she's working to build regional power for young Appalachians as media makers and creators of their own narratives. Originally from Floyd County in Eastern Kentucky, Jessica graduated from the University of Kentucky in 2015 with a degree in media arts and studies. She's also an alum of the Governor's Scholar Program and has a passion for fostering and maintaining local talent. Since the devastating floods that hit 14 counties in Eastern Kentucky in July 2022, Jessica has been coordinating the efforts of EKY Mutual Aid or East Kentucky Mutual Aid, which is a community of people working together to address each other's needs, neighbors helping neighbors without a top-down leadership structure. The EKY Mutual Aid program began as a Facebook group during the pandemic and has grown from 60 members to now over 5,000 since the flooding. I'm really grateful Jess is here to join us for a bit on today's Everywhere Radio to tell us more about what recovery efforts look like in Kentucky right now and to share a little bit about the role mutual aid can play during hard times. Yeah, thank you for having me, Whitney. And I do want to say, um, I've been helping coordinate efforts in Letcher County, but East Kentucky Mutual Aid is very much region-wide, and um, it would be, uh, I just have to shout out Missy Skaggs, one of the founders of, or maybe the founder of EKY Mutual Aid um, in uh, Grayson, Kentucky, because she's been doing this amazing work also since February 2020. I mean, do tell us a little bit about what it's, what EKY looks like in Letcher County and, um, and, and tell us a little bit about what mutual aid is. This is a big part of your story right now and has been probably, um, throughout these years. Yeah. Mutual aid is really about like, I think of it as creating sort of a community of care. Um, 
and just like sharing skills and services or money um, with people that need it um, without expecting, you know, anything really in return or knowing that later when you need something, they will be there for you. Um, and in Letcher County, it's been me and a group of seven or eight other people that have been coordinating efforts to, from, you know, doing supply deliveries starting the day after the flood to raising money um, through Venmo and PayPal. And most recently we've been um, like going to people's homes, monkeying out houses, cleaning up in ways that we're able. Um, we've been lucky to have some people come in with contractor experience and have been able to even like hang drywall for some people. Um, so it's really just, you know, any sort of monetary need or any sort of, like I said, service, you know, like if you have skills as a contractor, um, then you can provide that for, you know, no charge. Um, because, you know, a lot of people here need that right now um, as we continue to clean up. So, I mean, it really does sound like sort of the age old um way that we do things in small towns. I mean, neighbors helping neighbors, but at an accelerated rate, I imagine, and um, kind of more concentrated too. So how do people let you know that they need what, what they need and when they need it, all of those things? Yeah. So when the floods first hit, um, I think it was actually, it was the same day. Um, I don't know that the water had even fully gone down in most of Fletcher County yet. I had made an Amazon wish list um, and shared it out because I knew I live in town, luckily up on a hill, so I was not affected. Um, but if you walk like five minutes down the hill, the whole town was underwater and it was like nothing we'd ever seen before. And I knew that there was going to be so much need. Um, and I had friends that were able to actually get in talk, contact with me. Um, out in the county and they were talking to me about how bad it was there and you know I don't think I would have been prepared for it until I actually you know saw it well there's no way to prepare for it but it was hard for me to believe it until I actually saw what all had happened in places like you know neon you know I had this Amazon wish list because I knew people were going to need things but also I knew I couldn't wait on deliveries from Amazon before I, you know, we got out there and saw what people needed. Um, and I had a friend, actually Willa Johnson, who also works at Apple Shop, um, had reached out to me and was like, you can take things to Neon Volunteer Fire Department. So that's the first place I went. Um, and I knew places needed water because the water was out in those places. Um, and I had some clean materials. So that was the first place I went. I dropped off cases of water and some cleaning stuff. Um, I had received some donations. I'd put out my personal Venmo at this time. So I'd received some monetary donations. I went out, bought some things. And it was like, I saw what they had. It wasn't much. I mean, it was just the day after the flood. And, you know, I think at that point, people were still just kind of like in shock about what had just happened. Um, and driving through, I knew there was like, exponential need you know driving just through the county not even you know on the way to neon I knew there was going to be exponential need so um 
I just started buying supplies with um, the money that people had donated. Anything from first aid um, materials, cases of water, it was like endless cases of water, hygienic products, um, especially those that you don't need water for, um, food, uh, just anything that people need in the everyday that they don't even really think about, you know, it's just there. Um, and that was sort of how we started assessing need. And then, you know, as we, as we go along and we were dropping things off at drop-off points, it was like asking, what do you need? Um, and just being able to be like, you know, them telling us we need brooms, we need mops, we need this. And being able to put that out there on social media so other people could see, that was really sort of um, the way I started to get word out on my own personal social media. And, and now the Facebook group has 5,000 or almost 5,000 members, I think. Um, and I was looking at it earlier today, you know, and I've seen, I saw everything from posts, you know, just requesting, can I, you know, does anybody have a hundred dollars just to cover my rent, help me cover my rent for this month, um, to, to a request for water to, it was all kinds of different things. And I noticed in the, um, the, the administrator page, it said that, you know, no questions are asked. Um, anyone is welcome to make a request here. And if we have it, we'll give it no questions asked. And is that a, an important value or tenet of mutual aid in general? Or is that something that Letcher County um, has taken on? I think it's an important tenet of mutual aid in general. You know, it's, um, it's hard for people to ask for help. It's very hard. And, mm -hmm. and I'll say also, you know, when we were out giving, at one point, we were just giving out cash, um, $200. Um, and we were driving out in the county in places like Haymond in Ledger County that people still couldn't get out of at the time. And I drove through and just handed out $200 cash to people from donations that we had received. And every time I did it, people said, I don't know, please, I don't need that. And I'm like, you need it. Like you, you lost your home, you've lost your bridge, you've lost, and, you know, just saying, it's not for me, it, it's for mutual aid, and it's sort of that understanding of, okay, like, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, if the average, you ask the average person, like, what is mutual aid, if, if they really knew, or could give you, like, a, a definition of that, but I think now here, people have more of a general understanding of that, um, but, yeah, it's hard for people to ask for help, so you want to approach it as, if you're asking for help, just know that we are not going to judge you. And if we can get it to you, then we will. Um, I think that's a really, really important understanding um, for any mutual aid group. Hmm. Um, I'm also wondering about how mutual aid dovetails with or, you know, accompanies more structured services like federal aid, state aid that might be coming? Is it sort of like filling in gaps that are missed by those groups? Or um, does it does it apply mostly at the very beginning before FEMA can jump in? We've definitely been filling gaps here in Letcher County. Um, you know, it takes a really long time for these things to actually get to us, whether it be state aid or federal aid, because there's so many hoops that people have to jump through, bureaucratic things. So me being able to go the first day after the flood to 
drop off supplies in Neon or run over to Letcher County is, you know, essential um, because we, at that time, the National Guard hadn't come in. Um, we hadn't seen any sort of uh, state figure here either at that time. Um, so really it's a waiting game. So we're still filling those gaps that haven't been able to get to people yet. And I'm hoping that we can do that, you know, for as long as is needed. Um, and, and it feels like we will, it, it feels like more of that state and federal aid is starting to come, but it's also, you know, people need to know how to get access to that. People need to know who to go, who, where to go, who to call whenever they need services like that. And I think, you know, in the beginning too, we were kind of giving information, like here's how you apply for FEMA. Um, the Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky was giving out um, checks uh, for people, for relief checks. And we were like helping people sign up for that so they could get money for relief. Um, so it's, it's all these, you know, it's almost, it feels like mutual aid can be frontline sort of response, but all of these things are very layered and, and work, you know, together. Um, but mutual aid, obviously, because it has, I wouldn't say that we have a lack of structure. We don't have to jump through the same hoops that, you know, uh, the state has to to pass a bill, or we don't have to jump through the same hoops of a 501c3 that has to get a bunch of information or get a system set up so they can get relief checks to people. So being able to be on the front lines and having people willing to donate to mutual aid to help other people out is totally essential when disasters like this hit. Well, thank you, Jess, for your time. Thank you for all the good, beautiful work you're doing. Um, our hearts are with you and your community in Eastern Kentucky. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on this special edition of Everywhere Radio. If you feel moved to pitch in and help the folks in Eastern Kentucky, check out EKY Mutual Aid's Twitter feed or visit their website at mutualaiddisasterrelief.org for more information. Everywhere Radio is a production of the Rural Assembly. Our senior producer is Joel Cohen. Associate producers are Teresa Collins and Xander Brown, and our assistant producer is Anya Slepian. And we're grateful for the love and support from the whole team at Center for Rural Strategies. Love you mean it. You can be anywhere, we'll be everywhere.